Trinity Baptist Church, a community growing in faith, obedience, and joy. Hello. Um, So I just got to spend the entire week with this incredible group of young people. And in fact, it was my sixth year teaching VBS here at Trinity. Um, It's always been an incredible experience to watch these little ones learn about God and worship God. But one of my favorite parts is working with this most amazing VBS team ever. We're all working together to plant seeds of faith in the 50-plus kids we have here for the week. And I love being a part of a team. I love collaborating with others, developing and growing new leaders. I love helping others. But what I don't love is needing help. I am great with playing an equal part on a team, but needing help? No, thank you. And so as God would have it in his infinite wisdom and with his sense of humor, for the past 18 months or so, you could guess it. I have needed help. In February 2016, my husband Eric and I welcomed our third baby into our family. Two months later, my husband was offered an 11-month contract as a leading actor in Mamma Mia on a Royal Caribbean cruise ship. Our family was in a very difficult position financially, and the role and opportunity seemed like provision from God for us. So with the prayers and support of many members of this church, we made the difficult choice to take the contract, even though it meant Eric would be away for a long time. We knew there would also be fun moments of us all together when we visited the ship, And so we could look forward to that. So Eric was at sea, and the kids and I were here in New York. I was working as a teaching artist with two part-time jobs and finishing my master's degree in educational theater. And just in case I got comfortable and I thought perhaps I had figured out how to manage all of that, I had three ovarian cysts that started causing me debilitating pain for a few random days about once a month, every month, beginning in July, and consistently flaring up until I was able to have them surgically removed in mid-January. I needed help. So I fell to my knees, and I asked for it. I started with him. You got me, God. I cannot do this on my own. I need your wisdom and patience to raise my children. I need your perspective to be an amazing wife to my husband who is sacrificing in a different way than me. And I need your strength, healing, and creativity to have the energy to get through each day. And he showed up day after day. He was faithful. And then I asked my friends and family for help. And they showed up as the hands and feet of Jesus. They prayed for me. They would watch my kids so I could go to work or school. They were at my door at a moment's notice when I was in pain, taking care of the kids and spending days with me at the hospital when I was in pain and having surgery. My mom and my aunt flew up multiple times from North Carolina and Georgia for weeks at a time to be with us. And then there were the countless strangers on the subway who saw me with three kids and who offered their seat or offered to carry the stroller up and down the stairs for me. Do you need help? They would always ask. Yes, I would have to reply, remembering each time that God was growing humility in me. 
I know very well that in order to be saved, I must say, Lord, I need your help. My sin is too great, and I need your grace to cleanse me so I can approach your throne. I'm so grateful for that. I recognize, though, how hard it is for me to really say, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. And really mean that. In March... Eric came home, and in May, I graduated from City College with my master's in educational theater. People have asked me how I got through this season of life. I did it by asking for help. My name is Amanda Grundy, and I am a follower of Christ. A reading from Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, And with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Amanda. Um, Good morning, everybody. My name is Dave Page. I'm one of the the elders here at Trinity. And if you've been around Trinity for long enough, you know sometimes at the beginning of, of uh, the message we get into these small conversation groups where we get to, to wrestle or, or just chat over a, a, a lighthearted question to get us started. And so what I'd like for you to do is, uh, is quickly turn to two or three folks around you, introduce yourself, say, hi, my name's Dave Page, and I've been coming to Trinity for eight years, or this is my first time. So why don't you guys do that real quick, and then... Come back to me. Find a group. So what's really interesting about these things is, is once you kind of get people going, it, it's, it's hard to stop, even though some people kind of dread these things. But I'm actually going to give you a pass today. Um, that was just a way for you to get to know the people around you and maybe take that downstairs afterwards. But what I do want you to do is a, is a quick self-assessment. And if you've been around Trinity, when, when you hear that, let's get into small conversation groups, are you more inclined to think, yay, this is awesome. I can't wait to talk to these folks. Are you more of a, I'm still working through my morning coffee, but you know, I know we're called to be in community, and so this is, this is good stuff. Or is it, you know, going forward, I'm sitting up in that spot in the balcony where nobody can get to me anymore. It's, it's no judgment. It's just something to ponder as we, as we start our discussion today. If you're visiting with us today, we've been walking through the book of Hebrews for the last 11 weeks, and, and this book is a, is a letter to the early Jewish Christians who were at kind of a pivotal point in their faith. They had, they had broken away from their, their Jewish traditions that they had grown up with, and they, they had accepted Jesus as their Messiah, 
but they were at risk of, of backsliding and kind of going into some of their old ways. And so the prevailing message of this letter is that Jesus is, is the best. Jesus is superior to every other way that you have known. That we shouldn't settle for good enough, but that what Christ has done for us and what he offers us is, is simply the best. And up until now, in the first nine and a half chapters of this book, uh, the author has been effectively making the case, stating the case for why Jesus is, is superior. Explaining how the old system, the old Judaic tradition of the temple and the priest and, and all that was intended as a, a temporary fix. And that the new covenant that God has issued in through Jesus is, is the permanent fix for the eternal problem of sin that we face. Last week, Beth walked us through the, the supremacy of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice and, and how our role in God's story, our worship, is, is not a thing, but it's, it's a verb. It, it's not that we have a walk, but we are, we are walking. And so this, this capped off the, the author's doctrinal part of the letter. And so in the middle of chapter 10, we see them turn to, from, uh, they, they turn from argument to more instruction, where the author seeks to provide some practical steps for actually living this life out especially when, when life gets rough. And I'm going to assume that we can all agree that life as we know it is not always neat and clean and packaged up nicely. That events don't always fall into place the way that we would design them. But in fact, life is, is messy, it's challenging, and it's, it's painful. As we'll see, the, the Hebrews to whom this letter was addressed were going through some pretty tough times themselves. And so that's why the, the message of this passage this morning is laser-focused on, on strengthening our perseverance in the midst of those struggles, much like Amanda just talked to, but also warning of the consequences of falling away and reminding us of the rewards that God has promised to those who are faithful. So again, the, the author has just spent these nine and a half chapters uh, kind of you know, laying out this case. And in the first three verses that we see here today, uh, they, they, there's a quick summary of some key points, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most high place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Remember, because this letter was written to the early Jewish Christians, these points would have been revelatory for them a 180-degree difference to everything that they had been brought up with. And the other thing to notice here is that verse 19 starts with a, a very special word. I've always wanted the chance to do this. <laughs> when you see therefore in the Bible, what's the question you have to ask? Awesome. Keith will be so proud. What, what the text is saying to us here is, now that you have accepted this truth, coming up, what I'm going to lay out for you next is, is what you take into your day-to-day -day walk. We've, we've concluded the theory part of the course, and, and now we're looking at some practical applications. So because of what Jesus has done through this eternal sacrifice, what follows are the privileges and responsibilities of actually following him. As we look at, at verse 22, you can imagine the first three verses summarized as Therefore, because of everything we've already discussed, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, 
having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. The, the text begins to highlight uh, the blessings of the new covenant, beginning with this first exhortation to, to draw near to God. And remember, getting, getting close to God for an individual in this time would have been exactly the action that was unattainable in the old system because of the most high priest was the only person allowed into the most holy place, the, the veil that separated God from, um, from the people. But because Jesus has opened this new way as the ultimate sacrifice, those who believe now have an uninhibited direct access to that one-on-one relationship with God. And what's more, we're able to approach God with an honest, authentic heart. We can come as we are with the the imperfections of life and still have complete confidence in in the certainty of that relationship with him. Through this new covenant, our our consciences, consciences and our hearts are cleansed, not temporarily like in the old system, but completely, once for all. In, in, verse thir- uh, in verse 23, we begin to get insight into the context of, of the audience uh, for which this, this author is writing when it said, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. The hope that we hold on to is, is the good news of the gospel, right? It is that <clears throat> the God who created the universe and everything in it and didn't need us to enhance his existence still made a way through his son so that we can have permanent, eternal community with him. But, but why does it say to hold to it unswervingly? Other versions translate this as hold tightly without wavering or hold fast or hold firmly. What, what are we supposed to take away from that? Let me try to do a little illustration for you. Um, when, you're, when you're walking down the sidewalk texting, how, how firmly are you holding onto your phone? That's a trick question. Don't walk and text, people. We need to keep our sidewalks safe. So, so let's change the scene a little bit. If, if you're on the train in the morning and, and you're holding on with one hand and you're just trying to catch up on an article, you know, are you, are you holding on to this thing with, like, two little fingers so that, you know, when, when the train jerks or, you know, something happens, you know, it, it has the, ten, you know, potential to fall? Or are you gripping it full bore, you know, so that, when you get the backpack in the face or the bump from the doors opening, you know, you're, you're keeping it safe. The, the same principle kind of applies for our faith because if we don't hold on to it firmly, if we don't store our, that hope that we have deep in our hearts, it, it can be constantly in danger of being torn away or damaged by the struggles of life. And why do we hold on to something firmly? It's because it has value. It's, it's because it's important to us. It's because there's, there is a danger if we do not. Continuing in verse 24, the, the author lays out a, a few other points. Uh, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. The author is building upon uh, the last couple of verses where they were talking about the relationship between an individual and God. And here brings in the human relationship aspect as well because God's design wasn't for us to hold unswervingly to that hope all on our own. 
we're implored to live life deeply engaged with one another. And these, these verses provide uh, a roadmap or a framework of sorts. First, we're told to consider one another, to be cognizant and aware of those that are around us, and to think about how we can motivate each other on, on our journey of faith. Paul gives us a, a similar message in his letter to the Philippians when he writes, Do nothing out of selfish, selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Looking out for each other is, is crucial to our walk as, as Christians, as followers of Christ. But the Hebrews author adds this, this other word, uh, this, uh, this element of spurring. Um, if you think about you know, a cowboy sitting on a, a horse, spurring is not meant to be necessarily comfortable, but it is intended to produce a, a positive action. Because if, if I think about it, loving good deeds aren't always at the top of my to-do list. They're not always at the front of mind. And so while it can be at pleasant, unpleasant at times, Having someone spurring you on in, in a positive way can be very beneficial for us and, and for the community at large. The second point that the author makes is don't stop meeting together. And um, theologians that have looked at this have said that this can apply to, to large gatherings like a Sunday service today, but also individual Bible studies or, or fellowship dinners or, or ways that we get together and, and grow community. Um, have you heard... Um, have you heard people use this phrase, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church? It, it's evident that this author is, is concerned about some people that have withdrawn and maybe kind of spouting that theos because they're not engaging with their faith community. But while to some of us that may sound appealing, um, that's actually biblically problematic because in John thirteen thirty five, Jesus clearly says, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. One pastor actually put it this way when he said, uh, loving others is gritty, real, and difficult. But that is part of the practice of following Jesus. If we don't love God's people, then we have reason to suspect that our relationship with God is not genuine. That could be indicting, but I would argue that being in community with one another is, is a way that we both resemble Jesus in the present. Because Jesus was very often with people, uh, large groups, but also his, his core group of, of Peter, James, John, and the Twelve. But being a, in community also avails ourselves to being more conformed to the image of Christ as we surround ourselves with people that we're, will spur us on, that will help us grow more into the likeness of Christ. The third point in, in these couple of verses is uh, encourage one another. Um, now, the Greek word translate, yes, you're going to check your box for your daily Greek, but um, I'm, I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, the Greek word translated here as encouraging is uh, parakaleo, and it's used over uh, 100 times in the Bible. And it, it's actually an interesting word because it has a variety of different translations, most often translated as beseech or call to one's side which, again, is promoting this physically present community. But it can also be translated as to address or to speak to uh, in, in a variety of different ways, um, either admonishing or exhorting, 
consoling or comforting, encouraging or strengthening, and instructing or teaching. And, and I think we see it in this context, it's used as a contrast to the, the previous clause, when the author says, not giving up meeting together, but encouraging one another. So what, what I take from this is, there is both a physical presence and an emotional support that's vital to us building up our fellow believers. And the, the final point that the author has in these couple of verses is, finally, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Because this author knew that Christ's second coming is not a myth. It's not a fairy tale. He is coming back. And so the author's exhortation is, let that pending coming of the Lord hasten and, and focus our intentionality on, on all of the above. One more takeaway that I, I see from this text in 24 and 25 is, um, there, there are two roles that the author outlines. There is an us, and there is a one another. As Christians, we're, we are called to be both part of the us, but also the one another. And let me, let me tell you a little bit what I mean. You know, at, at different stages of our lives, we'll be called to play both roles. In order to spur someone on, that person must be open to being spurred. For an encouragement or an instruction or a comforting to, to be effective, the receiver must be humble and, and recognize that they maybe could use a good word. Um, this isn't exactly easy for some of us, and in this case, I, I am the some of us. Um, most of you, uh, if you've seen me over the last six months, have probably noticed that the back of my head is not nearly as visually appealing as it once was. Um, at the beginning of this year, I had... Uh, several surgeries to uh, remove this uh, benign tumor on my scalp. And while this wasn't a life or death thing, it, it didn't end up being the walk in the park that I, I thought it was. Um, and so during the, the month or so, uh, back in like January, February, when this was going on, um, in what some would say is stereotypical guy fashion, I tried to kind of downplay it and, and you know, make it no big deal. Um, until one day when I was catching up with my mom, I always get mixed up when I talk about my parents. I love you, Mom and Dad, if you're watching. Um, and she told me that the whole prayer team at their church was praying for me. And I kind of objected and spouted back a little bit, and I said, they, they got more important things to worry about. This is not a big deal. And she, you know, corrected me in that moment and said, you know, I, I needed to allow people to pray for me. My pride was telling me not to be a burden on people. Uh, but in reality, I was preventing these people from participating in the core message of these verses simply because in that moment, I was, I was too prideful to be the one another. So the challenge here for you and me is every one of us needs to be both spurring on and encouraging others. And every one of us must recognize that we are also in need of spurring and encouragement. At Trinity, one of our, our core values is being doers of the word. And so let's allow ourselves to be both part of that us and the one another. That's the only way that a community building each other up, sharing each other's burdens, and helping each other hold unswervingly to that hope will work through the ups and downs of life. 
Unfortunately, this author had, had apparently seen enough people turning away that they felt compelled to document a, a clear warning of the severe consequences to be faced. In verse 26, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Professing faith in Jesus doesn't make anyone perfect. The life change that we, we experience is a newfound and growing desire to, to serve the Lord rather than ourselves. And, and it's a process. As, as Beth said last week, we're on this process of, I can't say this word, meta, metanoia, of being restored to God's original design. And, and each one of us has our own path and our own pace. But here, the, the author's warning against deviating from that journey and, and going back into ongoing intentional sin, uh, a continued willful, willful disobedience of having, after having understood the truth of God's salvation. I'm guessing the, the author's writing this because they had seen it. And in case the readers were banking on some other way, whether it was their, their old Jewish traditions of sacrifice in the temple or some other thing that they thought the world was offering, it was, it's made clear here that there is no other way. There's no sacrifice that will cover those sins. In verse 28, just to drive it home, anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The Lord's message is clear that he has made a way and he has offered a choice. And you're either with him or you're against him. And there are eternal places reserved for each side. But the author continues, for the faithful that do persevere, they get, they get kind of a reminder of some of the things that God has already brought them through. In, in verse 32, remember those early days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Or as the, the New Living Translation puts it, remember how you remained faithful even though it meant terrible suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Struggles and troubles come in, in many flavors, uh, whether anxiety, anger, fear, frustration, injustice, pain, the writer is acknowledging that they have already persevered and helping them recall how God has brought them through and stood with them in the past. If, if you've ever looked at, you know, you can pretty much look at any story in the Old Testament, and there's kind of a general theme where the Israelites screw up, they call out to God, he saves them, they get say, yay, that's great, and then they quickly forget and move on and screw up again. That's not an official synopsis. But, but we as humans have very short memories, especially for the good things of God, I find. 
And that's exactly the enemy's strategy for using the troubles of, these, of this world to, to drive us away from the truth. But recalling God's blessings and, and faithfulness from the past helps us to cling tightly to that same hope for the future. Um, we talked once in, in here uh, years ago about, about the trophies of God. You know, journaling when God has done something magnificent in your life so that you can look back in troubled times and remember how, you know, God's faithfulness in that moment. And that's what the author is talking about in, in verse 35. Do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. And so this got me thinking, you know, what, what are some of the things that God promises to those who are faithful in, in his word? In 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Romans 8.18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. In James 1.12, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. 2 Timothy 4.7, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness with the, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. So the author is basically saying, when, when you feel that life is crashing down on you, strive to seek comfort in the truth that the promises of God are far superior to the problems of this world. And in the final verses of this section, uh, the author uses quotations from uh, the prophets Isaiah and Habakkuk uh, to contrast the ultimate outcome for those who belong to God and those who do not by, by providing one last encouragement. In verse 37, For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith, and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Jesus was pretty clear. Uh, I mean, he told us directly that in this world we're going to have troubles. Uh, that part's a given, non-negotiable. What we can control is how we respond to those, those mountains, those bumps, those trials in our lives. And our responses have powerful impacts on our walk, either for the positive or for the negative. Tim Keller wrote about uh, Jesus and the trials uh, we face, um, and, and he put it like this. <clears throat> Jesus lost all his glory so that we could be clothed in it. He was shut out so that we could get access. He was bound, nailed, so that we could be free. He was cast out so we could approach. And Jesus took away the only kind of suffering that can really destroy you. That is, being cast away from God. He took so that now all suffering that comes into your life will only make you great. A lump of coal under pressure becomes a diamond. And the suffering perseverance of a person in Christ only turns you into somebody gorgeous. So I'm going to pray for us in a minute. Um, before I do, I'd ask you to, to bow your heads and, and ask the, the Holy Spirit to, 
to take you through a, a few questions. Thinking about how am I responding to adversity in my life today? Also, is there someone I need to, to thank or acknowledge who has supported or encouraged me through a tough time? Is there someone in my sphere of influence that, that the Lord is calling you to come alongside of today? Um, where can you be both in us and in one another? Father God, thank you for making a way for us through your son. Thank you for Jesus who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. He set the bar for what it means to endure temporal suffering for an eternal purpose and reward. Help us to bring to mind today, Lord, your faithfulness through past challenges so that we can cling even more tightly to the hope that we have for you in the future. And Lord, help us to be grateful for those in our lives that have come alongside us and give us eyes to see those who are struggling and in need of support and encouragement today. Lord, I know that there are people here today that walked in bearing a very heavy load. There's a lot going on. And so, Father, we, we pray for your, your long-suffering patience, Lord, that you would make the truth of these scriptures deeply impactful in our hearts today and that you would help us do this together. And Lord, if there are folks here today that have not yet experienced that faithfulness that you offer firsthand, I thank you that your invitation is always open for those that just want to say, I, I'm a sinner, Lord, and I, I need you as my Savior. And thank you for what you have done for me. We ask all these things in the name of your Son, pray that you are glorified through them.